Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests today are David Kershaw, Dean of the London School of Economics Law School, and Edmund Schuster, Associate Professor of Law, also at the London School of Economics. We'll be discussing their article, The Purpose of Transformation of Corporate Law, which is forthcoming in the American Journal of Comparative Law. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. David, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, and Edmund, welcome back. Thanks, Andrew. It's lovely to be able to talk to you today. Yeah, thank you for having us. One of the hottest topics in corporate law is the question of corporate purpose. When we talk about corporate purpose, I wonder if we're all referring to the same thing. Does corporate purpose mean the same thing if we are talking to managers of companies? Does it mean the same thing if we're talking to investors? Does it mean the same thing if we're talking to corporate theorists such as yourself? Thanks, Andrew. I think this is one of the key things that the article's looking at, really, because we don't think academics, business people, lawyers are actually talking about the same thing. Traditionally, at least since the Berlin-Dodds debate, we've thought about corporate purpose as being about whose interest should the company be running, right? Should it be running the interest of shareholders? Should it be running the interests of all stakeholders, which shareholders are one, one component part? But we think corporate purpose is being used in a different modern managerial sense, and certainly the sense that I think investors and company managers use it in. And here, we think purpose is about the reason for being for the company, the reason why the company exists. It's like a, a mission purpose, aspirational idea about why the company is here and what it contributes to society. We then think that keys into the traditional debates about corporate purpose, because in order to think about what your purpose is and how you're going to achieve and affect your purpose, you need then to think about the balance of different interests amongst your stakeholder groups who are affected by your corporate activity. So you need to adjust, if you like, your hierarchy and matrix of interests in order to serve that corporate purpose. But corporate purpose in this sense is very different than the sense in which Bernard Dodds used it or the sense in which, say, Lucien Bebchuk at the Harvard Law School uses it today. This is Edmund. In addition to what David said, we also try to unpack in our article that there can be different levels of missions and different levels of purpose. And so we are most interested in the kind of overarching purpose that, as David said, explains why the company exists, but at the same time is concrete enough to actually act as a guiding principle for the corporation's behavior. As we think about what corporate purpose means to these different actors, to managers, to lawyers, to investors, to academics. I wonder if you could identify why purpose matters. Why does it matter what purpose means? What are the implications for capitalism? What are the implications for society? This is Edmund here. There are few topics that excite people across different disciplines as much as corporate purpose and more generally, the impact of corporate activity on society at the moment. And what we try to show is that if you take corporate purpose seriously, then it can unlock 
a way in which corporations can work in a way and can create wealth, can create success, economic success, in a way that is consistent with society's expectations. So it can further welfare in society more generally because of the statement and then adherence to an overarching purpose. David here. So we think there are significant implications of this idea for capitalism and for society, although it's sometimes a little difficult to pass ex exactly what those implications are. I think in relation to capitalism, one of the claims that we're making here is that purposeful companies provide a pathway to value generation that is not available to the non-purposeful. So value generation can be enhanced to the extent that company lives its purpose and can bond with its customers, with its suppliers, with its workers. These forms of bonding can enhance value generation, can enhance innovation and productivity. So there's a pathway to value generation that if you're not purposeful, you won't generate. Equally, we think there are on balance, potentially very positive implications for society, because in the process of elevating one of these mission purposes, it invariably results in a reconfiguration of whose interest the company has to be running. So that configuration has to be connected to purpose. Purpose comes first, and then the interest group matrix has to be ordered to enable the fulfillment of that purpose. But that reorganization of the interest group matrix is typically going to involve a demotion of shareholders and, and an elevation of other groups. So in that sense, it has positive implications for society. Now, I think in some respects, the paper doesn't fully flesh out all these ideas. And maybe there's a more problematic side that we haven't fully engaged with, because it also seems to me, as I think more and more about these issues, and, and maybe something to think about after this paper, is that a purposeful focus, even if it elevates non-shareholder interests and demotes shareholder interests, can also have significantly detrimental implications. And I think more and more we're seeing this in the context of many of these companies that we actually do think are purposeful, particularly in the social media space at the moment. They're purposeful, they have a different matrix of interests, and yet the pursuit of those purposes, even though it might bond customers, suppliers, employees, might have very significant negative externalities in, in ways that we've not typically thought. So we think there are positive implications for society, but I think as we push it deeper and deeper, it is perhaps more difficult than we portray it in the paper. If I can just add to that, so one analogy that I find useful is to compare it to people just having principles. And so you could say, I live by the principle that honesty is the best policy. And this can be a guiding principle. And for this to be meaningful, it has to include sometimes taking an approach that isn't immediately beneficial to myself. And nevertheless, adhering to my principle, because at some point in the past, I decided that this is a good principle to live by. And so just to add to what David just said, acknowledging does, of course, not mean that adhering to any principle will always be beneficial, will always be a good policy. It just means that there are principles, there are, in the corporate sense, there are corporate purposes that taking seriously has the potential of unlocking value for society and for the corporation itself. One of the discussions in your paper, which I found really striking, is the discussion of the role of aspiration or the promise of aspiration within a company among its stakeholders. Could you talk about aspiration? What does that mean? And what role does it play within the broader question of corporate purpose? 
Yeah, thanks, Andrew. David here. I think that's a great question. And it is a motivating factor in, in the piece. The idea of a, of a mission purpose, uh, something that can provide real meaning for stakeholders who engage with the company, either externally or internally, and maybe easiest to focus internally. I think it's motivated by an idea that, that all of us want to be inspired, right? We want to have a calling, something beyond uh, the mundane of our everyday lives. And when we think about corporations, we don't typically think about callings and inspiration and taking us beyond the mundane of our everyday lives. But the conception of, of corporate purpose, as it is articulated by many companies today, and in this sense in which we mean it, which is an aspirational calling connected to what the company does, I, I think it does have the capacity to inspire and, and give us something to aspire to. And I think for me personally, that's driven this idea motivated the piece because I think it makes a difference if you can come to work and feel connected to something that is the more than your everyday. And I've never felt really that you could be inspired by a pure commitment to value in the shareholder value meaning of the term. This is a comparative piece and the United Kingdom has really served as a first mover in many ways within this new era of the corporate purpose debate. Could you maybe talk about the experience of the UK and the UK corporate governance principles? And does that experience offer any learnings for other countries, including the United States? Edmund here. You're right in a way that the UK has been a first mover, but it's a very limited way, in a sense. What the UK has done, and we describe that in the piece, is to introduce the corporate purpose debate into this non-binding, to a certain extent, high principle piece of soft law, the corporate governance code. And what we try to show in our piece, and we go in quite some detail here, is that in many ways, this first movement into the co corporate purpose debate, because it is restricted to the corporate governance code, creates a set of tensions with mandatory corporate law in the UK. Because UK corporate law has been extremely shareholder focused in a way that is almost unique in the world, it really lays bare some of these tensions that have to exist when you, on the one hand, want to empower shareholders to immediately respond to corporate actions and to immediately enforce the company to do the shareholders bidding. And this idea of purpose as we understand it something meaningful, something that has a real impact on what the corporation does. And that is, to a certain extent, irreversible and has to be irreversible to do exactly what David just said, namely to inspire people and to give people a credible vision for what the corporation is trying to achieve. Yeah, David, and I completely agree with how Edmund has presented that. I think there's something slightly unusual and ironic in a way about the UK being the first mover in this sense. And, and that goes very much to what Edmund just said. So on the one hand, it's, I, we think it's a first mover in terms of, of deploying this understanding of purpose. We look at how purpose is deployed in the UK corporate governance code and the paper concludes that it's using it in precisely this mission purpose sense. So it's a first mover. But what's uh, ironic really about it being a first mover, is, as the piece argues, is that the UK corporate law doesn't provide the optionality that you need to build a, a corporate legal ecology or, or a zone of insulation, as we call it, 
to enable purpose to actually flourish within corporations. So on the one hand, the UK is a first mover. On the other hand, it's the UK corporate legal ecology, legal setting doesn't enable these companies to to exist in the way that other jurisdictions do. Andrew, if there's a lesson here uh, for US corporate law, it is the benefits of its optionality. As we engage in debates about the appropriateness of staggered boards and with cause removal rights, et cetera, and poison pills, et cetera. Perhaps the lesson here is that they are extremely useful for purposeful companies. And if you want to construct a purposeful company, then you need to be able to construct the a suitable tailored legal ecology. And U.S. corporate law allows you to do that, whereas U.K. corporate law does not. It's one thing for a company to state or define its purpose. There is probably a little bit of a thread where mission statements are tacked on a poster on the wall and might become invisible in the background. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the implementation of a corporate purpose or mission. I have somewhat of a compound question here, but I wonder about what does it mean for a company to define its purpose versus being able to affect that purpose what are some of the practical barriers to affecting a corporate purpose or mission? How can those barriers be overcome? And how can the efficacy of corporate purpose be supported? Thanks, Andrew. It's David here. Maybe I'll have a first cut at the first part, and then I'll let Edwin have a go at the second part. So what does it mean for a company to define its purpose versus to affect that purpose? I guess our understanding of the paper is, is very much connected to how you pose the question there. There are two ways in which this sort of idea of purpose could operate in corporations. The first one is that it's uh, it's purely a veneer that's painted on a company to make the company look good. It's a marketing ploy, but no one takes it seriously. And as no one takes it seriously, it doesn't provide an aspirational reason to go to work. It doesn't provide an aspirational reason to be connected to that company when you buy its product or you supply components to that company. And so we are clearly not interested in the paper in that sort of deployment of purpose. We're interested in how to make purpose real, how to make purposeful companies truly purposeful to affect that purpose, as you say. And the primary concern here is that even in companies that start out wanting to be truly purposeful with an honest commitment to that purpose, that if uh, the interests of certain groups can be imposed uh, on the company, can be transmitted into the boardroom of the company, then uh, those purposive aspirations will be because no one will take them seriously, because it will be relatively clear uh, that the interests of, say, shareholders being transmitted into the boardroom will always come first. And when there's a conflict between purpose and shareholders, shareholders win, purpose isn't taken seriously, uh, and therefore purpose is not truly implemented, and it just is purely a veneer. So uh, again, connecting to some of the comments we made earlier, it's key then to making this notion of purpose work is to provide a suitable uh, ecology, what we call a purposeful ecology. And the paper explores different ways in which that could be achieved. You could have purposeful blockholders, for instance, uh, shareholders that share your view of purpose, and, and therefore will not elevate value above purpose. Of course, most companies, most large companies in the United Kingdom and the United States don't benefit from such purposeful blockholders. You can also generate a purposeful ecology, a dual class uh, share structure, which is possible in the United States until now has been more difficult in the United Kingdom, although the regulators trying to make it a little bit easier. But of course, there are only a very small subset of companies that could benefit from those, particularly companies coming to market for the first time where founders can benefit from those dual class shares. So the paper's ultimate focus really is in creating this purposeful ecology 
is on corporate law and how corporate law in companies that are, that are widely held can be used to construct what we call a zone of insulation. And that idea of the zone of insulation is that it insulates managers from those value pressures. When the managers are faced with, and we need to have a zone of insulation that ensures that if managers make a trade-off in favor of purpose, their aspirational purpose, then the probability of them losing their job in the short to medium term doesn't go up dramatically. And the article is all about looking at whether the UK and the UK construct that purpose, but it also draws, as I mentioned before, comparative Germany and the United States, where in the United States it's possible to construct such a zone of insulation with corporate law. In, in Germany, that zone of insulation is provided largely through mandatory law. And again, if you can't create that zone of insulation, then purpose will not be realized, purpose will not be affected, and purpose will be a dishonest marketing ploy. Edmund here. So just expanding on what David just said, I think there are two steps to this. And the first is the kind of definitional stage. When the company, when the corporation defines its purpose, in order for that purpose to have any real effect, it needs to be stated in a way that is both concrete enough to actually guide the critical decisions of the corporation, but at the same time, high level enough to give this guidance, to have this inspirational effect that we mentioned earlier. And then the second stage, what David mostly focused on now, is really the bonding stage. How can the corporation credibly and at least semi-permanently tie itself to that stated purpose. And we explore these different ways and we fully acknowledge that in some cases, even without any legal bonding mechanism, a company will be able to, in a way, tie itself to the mast created and defined by its own mission purpose statement in a way that takes the decision-making power somewhat, at least, away from shareholders. It's not a perfect example, but if you look at the kind of controversy that Tesla created recently by getting into Bitcoin in, in various ways, one of the, I think, key reasons for a public outcry here was the perceived incompatibility of this move with the company's stated mission purpose of creating a sustainable energy future. And so we acknowledge that in some circumstances, the mere fact that a statement of purpose is widely communicated and accepted by customers and other third parties has this binding effect. But then we say the problem is opportunistic behavior and mainly opportunistic behavior on the part of shareholders. And so we explore ways in which bonding is possible. As David said, the UK is a special case here because law is really a very big barrier to creating this permanent or semi-permanent bond with a stated mission purpose. David, again, if we could just add a small couple of comments to that. I guess what we're saying in a way is that law matter because it's your backstop. It may indeed be the case in that great example that Edmund just gave with Tesla that reputational effects can constrain the ability of companies, managers and directors to renege on their commitment to purpose. But only in situations when there are clear signals that you've reneged, right? 
And so Tesla moves explicitly and publicly into Bitcoin. Oh, we don't, oh, there's something disconnected there and everyone can see that. But there are many ways in which companies can move to renege on purpose that are completely invisible. And if, if managers and directors are subject to pressures to renege on purpose by shareholders, and they can do so in ways which are invisible that will not trigger those uh, reputational effects, then the likelihood is they will take them. So again, it's essential to be able to construct an ecology that ensures that managers don't feel those pressures or at least dampens the extent to which they feel those pressures. Edmund here again. Part of your question is, how can we actually achieve that? And I think it's important to be very clear about what we don't say in the piece. We don't say each company needs, in a way, an other or society-serving purpose and that we expect that to happen or indeed to be necessarily desirable. What we say is that the evidence is just not there. We don't know exactly what kind of division of power, ultimately, between different corporate constituencies creates optimal outcomes. And looking at this empirical record, we then say we should be humble. We should accept that we just don't know. And if we don't know, then we need to make sure that there is some choice, some experimentation, and that the law provides the space necessary for this experimentation, rather than deciding that there is one solution, which in at least the UK's case is a focus on immediate and mandatory, non-optional shareholder power, that this is the only way in which companies can be successful. I really like the, the way you put that, Edmund, that we should be humble and that's exactly right. And, and the language we use in the paper is the language of regulation neutrality. We look at the different theoretical positions upon whether or not you should provide information to managers and directors. We then look at the empirical evidence. And as has been said, we include the empirical evidence just simply doesn't tell us one way or the other. And if scholars say it does, then it really seems to represent a leap of faith in one direction or the other. It doesn't tell us what to do. Theory doesn't tell us clearly what to do. And in which case, just to repeat what Evan said there, because I really like it, we need to be humble and we need to be regulatory neutral. And law and regulation needs to facilitate options facilitate choices and allow these types of companies to blossom. And exactly as Evan said, that's what the UK does not do. Although, interestingly, and the paper explores this, going to your question about practical barriers, Andrew, interestingly, in the United Kingdom, although we say that you can't construct this type of zone of insulation, we explore ways using legal engineering in which you could do. And anyone who reads the paper will see that, that actually if you push it really hard and you play with law really hard, then, then you can come up with some form of zone of insulation. But as a practical reality in the United Kingdom, no director manager would propose this, no a leading corporate lawyer would recommend it and no investor would accept it. So it's not available. So then the question becomes, what do we want to do about that? And that's where being humble and regulatory neutrality come in. And we think that there must be legislative change here in the United Kingdom going towards the direction of the position in the United States that offers optionality, a menu of options for companies from which they can choose to construct a legal ecology that fits with their mission purpose. Are there any key takeaways or closing thoughts you'd like to offer listeners from this conversation or from the article? Edmund here, just to echo my own remarks just now, I think the kind of the key takeaway from our perspective is that when designing corporate law rules, especially when these corporate law rules go to the very core of what a corporation can and should do, we should be careful in not being 
too prescriptive in the absence of very clear evidence. The second key takeaway, at least from my perspective, I'm originally from Austria. And so comparing approaches across jurisdictions, it's interesting to see that in some jurisdictions, such as the UK, the mere fact that something is available in principle, that it could be argued, that it could be tried, is not in itself enough to actually encourage people to experiment. That in some markets, kind of soft encouragement is needed in a way that perhaps in different corporate ecologies is not as necessary. I guess my closing remarks are very similar. Optionality is central to how we should think about the design of corporate law. But when we think about optionality, it's, it's not good enough just to say you could do it if you tried really hard and employed some really good lawyers. But that's not good enough because it won't happen. And so if we want companies to take purpose seriously in the way that we're using purpose in this article, then corporate law and regulation needs to nudge companies, founders, directors, managers to think really hard about the legal ecology which governs that company and its relationship to their purposive aspiration. And if law and regulation doesn't nudge them to do this, then you end up in a space in which many companies feel that they can't even explore and play with that legal ecology and that they're stuck with the one that which often will not be well tailored or fitting for that company's corporate purpose. Our guests today have been David Kershaw. Dean of the London School of Economics Law School and Edmund Schuster, Associate Professor of Law, also at the London School of Economics. We've discussed their article, The Purpose of Transformation of Corporate Law, which was forthcoming in the American Journal of Comparative Law. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. David, Edmund, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew, for having us on. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.